There's two things I would like you to know right out of the gate about that uh, video. The first is that uh, <clears throat> clearly I have no pride or self-respect if I am willing to do a video like that. Or at least that's what I want you to think. And secondly, the, 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 the pride on display, the, the fault there, the, the vice that is being highlighted is actually not pride. It is vanity. Uh, vainglory. They are related, pride and vanity, uh, but they are slightly different. Vanity is, is all about our image. It's being concerned about how people see us. It's, it's uh, a desire to be perceived uh, as important, whether we're por- important or not. Uh, it's a desire to, to hear the applause that accompanies greatness, whether we're great or not. The vanity, vainglory, technically, is something that is uh, very prevalent in the celebrity culture in which we find ourselves in, and um, it's easy to make fun of. Garrison Keillor sort of blows the whistle on himself when he says, I lust after recognition. I am desperate to win all the little merit badges and trinkets of my profession, and I am of less real use in this world than any good cleaning lady. Um, Pride is related to vanity. They are both spiritual as opposed to physical sins, um, but pride is different. Pride is not interested simply in being perceived as important. Pride wants to be important. Pride is not simply interested in being perceived as being great. Pride wants to be great. In the end, pride wants to be the center. People who are proud are expecting in one sense that the world is going to revolve around them. Pride is ultimately being self-referential as opposed to being God-centered. And another way to think about it is, is to say that pride is the opposite of humility. Each of the seven deadly sins, which can also be referred to as vices, so each of the seven deadly vices has at least one, maybe two, corresponding virtues. And the, the virtue that corresponds, or the vice that corresponds to the, to the virtue, excuse me, the vice, the virtue that corresponds to the vice of pride is both gentleness and humility. And humility is um, the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. This is the opposite of pride. Someone who is humble is willing to make the noble choice to forego their status, deploy their resources, or use their influence for the good of others before themselves. Pride is the opposite. Humility is not low self-esteem. Humility is is not saying you're not good at something when you are. Humility is not being a doormat. Humility does not mean that you can't have strong opinions. Humility does not mean that you hate yourself. Hating yourself is actually a very selfish thing to do. Loving yourself and hating yourself are not opposites. In both cases, we are very consumed with ourselves. We are thinking about ourselves. Hating ourselves is more selfish than selfless. The goal is to be self-forgetful 
not self-referential. Pride is ultimately the sin of being self-referential, and it is a sin that uh, ultimately blocks us from the love and grace of God that is extended to us. So today we launch this series on the seven deadly sins with the first sin of pride, and I want to make four points for you today. Number one, it, uh, it starts here, right? Our problems are generally understood by theologians, not all but most, to start with pride. It is the it is the first sin, it is the root of other sins, it is the it is the genesis of all the headaches and heartaches and problems that we uh, find ourselves in. And those who argue this way, as C.S. Lewis does in your reading for this week in that in that book out of Mere Christianity, uh, in there Lewis says that uh, that pride is the essential vice, the utmost evil. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness are all mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Those who um, believe like Lewis does that, that pride is the principal sin will point out, first of all, that pride appears to be the problem that that turned the devil into the devil. We don't get a lot of background on stuff that happens pre-Genesis 3, before the fall of mankind. There is uh, what we believe to be a reference to, uh, to the attitude of the angel that falls to become Satan in Isaiah 14. It's a passage that also refers uh, to the sin of King Nebuchadnezzar, who we heard about in Daniel chapter 4. But there what we see is um, this statement that is made. I desire to ascend to the heavens, to raise my throne above the stars of God, to make myself like the Most High. So this appears to be the sin that leads to all other sins. This is clearly the attitude that gets Uh, that leads to the fall of mankind, right? The promise is you will be like God, right? I want want to be not who I am. I want to be like God. I I think I deserve to be like God, and that leads to the crash. And so we see in uh, the writings of many people, such as Gregory the Great, who is uh, the 6th century bishop of Rome, who who gives us, in one sense, the seven deadly sins, he takes this list of eight evil thoughts that had been developed in the, by the desert fathers of Agrius Ponticus and others, and he changes it. And part of what he does, it's not quite as simple as this, but part of what he does is he changes it from eight to seven by taking pride out of the list, and he puts it at the base. He sees it as the sin that leads to the seven deadly sins, and then the seven deadly sins are the sins that lead to all other problems. And so he shortens the list to seven, and his list isn't the list that we're going to look at. Obviously, I'm preaching on pride. We recognize it as one of the seven deadly sins. There's a lot of moving parts on this, but, but, but it was that kind of thinking that pride comes first that leads him to get down to seven. Additionally, this is some of what's going on in Dante's mind as he writes uh, the Divine Comedy and, and gives us this image 
of, of hell being these nine concentric circles going down. Right? You might know Dante, uh, 14th century uh, poet, writes a 14,000-line epic poem called the Divine Comedy, in which he imagines that he is being uh, led on a tour of the afterworld by Virgil, the Roman poet. And they go from, uh, they go from paradise, uh, that's one of the three acts, paradise in heaven, down to the inferno uh, in hell. And he, um, he writes also about purgatory. Now, purgatory being a place... Uh, that he is suggesting, we don't find the idea of purgatory in the Bible, but purgatory being a place where he imagined that we work off the punishment for our sin. So, uh, you know, I would, I would remind you that we believe uh, in what Paul writes and that there is a moment of great exchange and our sins are not counted against us anymore. Uh, we're going to look at this passage later on, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's just to forgive us, which isn't what you would think, right? If we're sinful, you would think that justice would mean we would pay. He is just to forgive us of our sins because Christ paid for our penalty on the cross. So it would be unjust for that payment to have to be made twice. But Dante imagines purgatory, and in purgatory, you have to work off your sin. And each of the, the levels, there, again, there's nine sort of layers going down uh, in purgatory and also in the inferno of hell. And they loosely correspond to the seven deadly sins. Obviously not exactly if there's nine of them. But, but the punishment at each level fits the crime. And he has pride both at the first level and at the bottom level. And uh, we've got a, 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 an image here, and you see that um, uh, this is Gustave Doré's wood carving, and what you see are people with heavy stones on their back. And the punishment for pride is to be forced to only be able to look down, not to be able to ever look up. And so you are forced to humble yourself in that way. So <clears throat> first point is, Most theologians would argue that um, our problems start here. Second point, uh, we live in a culture where not everyone agrees. Okay, as a matter of fact, some people celebrate pride. The Romans and the Greeks did. Uh, Honor was was the highest virtue. And so you wanted uh, not to be humble. That That was the disposition of a slave. A a noble person would have lots of pride and lots of honor. And this is the attitude of the ancient world until it dramatically changes, right? There's no one writing in favor of humility in the ancient world until it dramatically changes. And and as I shared a couple years ago, there was a project that was done not long ago in in European universities. They gathered all these ancient historians together, and they said, the question we're asking is, why does it change? And they came to the unanimous conclusion, it changes exclusively because of Jesus. Because of the teaching of Jesus and because of his crucifixion. They recognize Jesus as great, but he is crucified. And they said, how can we put these things together? And they, it was because the ancient world said, we actually have to rethink what greatness looks like. 
Greatness is not honor and self-promotion. Greatness is service. And so we see that idea introduced in a remarkable way in the ancient world, but not everybody buys it. And so there's lots of people who don't buy it. Nietzsche uh, will say, look, God is dead. He's a German philosopher famous for the God is dead line. And he says all that matters in the end is power. There is no God, so all that's ultimately going to matter is power. You want to be able to force your way. And, and you need to force yourself to the front of the line. Ayn Rand will, will give voice to this in a popular context with her novels, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, which, which have protagonists which, uh, who are in many ways attractive because they're so tenacious. And they keep getting pushed down and they keep coming back up. And that's a noble quality. But, but they are ultimately self-promoting. Right? And, and you, if you miss it in the novels, you get that if you read Ayn Rand's book, The Virtue of Selfishness. Right, Put yourself in the very front. Don't care about others. Go to the head of the line. Let them take care of themselves. Raise the bar. If we all step up, if we all fight to the top, right, the best will get to the very top and we'll all win because the best will be in power. You don't have to worry about others. Push yourself out there. So we have that idea. And not too long ago, just a little while ago, John Fronmeyer, who um, is the retired uh, chair of the National Endowment of the Arts, called for a, a re-envisioning of the seven deadly sins. He, he doesn't like the list. Uh, he thinks we need to be less concerned about angering a god, a deity. We need to be more concerned about angering each other. And so he's got a whole different list. And by the way, he says some of these sins are actually good things. And high on his list of good things would be pride. So not everybody even sees this as a problem. Many do. Okay, the church is hardly alone in suggesting that humility is a better way forward. Uh, Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, this, the sort of premier management thinker today, says that one of the two qualities that characterize the best companies are humility. And so uh, not, humility is, is advanced by many, but you need to know that it's not advanced by everybody. So Theologians would say pride is the first sin. We live in a culture that says, no, uh, very mixed results about whether we even need to fear this. We do. And that leads to the third point. Pride is insidious. Pride is very subtle and, and sneaky. Um, I said last week that one of the reasons that you should um, be a part of this series on the seven deadly sins is because you probably don't understand sin as well as you think. It's tricky, and, and we don't always know what we're up against. And pride would be a great example of this. So let me illustrate this for you. Um, I have been thinking about, speaking on, writing about pride and humility for probably 30 years. So you might say that I'm an expert on the topic of pride and humility. Um, I, of course, would not claim to be an expert on humility because I recognize the irony about claiming to be an expert on humility. But, full honesty here, 
I actually believe that I'm an expert on humility. And I'm very conflicted about that. As a matter of fact, I, I wrestle with whether or not I'm qualified to give a sermon on pride in which I am proud of the sermon. And it goes beyond that. I'm actually proud of the fact that I'm conflicted about (laughs) this topic of pride, right? It gets you going and coming. It is insidious. Humility is a shy virtue. As soon as you start to talk about it, it runs and hides. Pride never leaves the stage, right? It just takes another angle, and it comes at you. It is insidious. We have, uh, we have a video that I think highlights this point, uh, so let's look at the screens. I'm Scott Sanderson, and Kathleen and I have been uh, a part of Christ Church since 1982. I've had the incredible opportunity to be able to live out a boyhood dream of playing professional baseball as a career. Um, what, uh, what a teammate noticed, and he was the, at least he had the courage to approach me. Maybe many others noticed the very same thing. Uh, but he came up to me and said, uh, Scott, I'm confused. Uh, I see you acting one way with one group and another way with another group. Which one's the real you? I realized that I needed to change from being an actor to being real. And so the the more progress I made in that direction, my mistake at that point was that I started to become very proud of being more principled. In 2010, I was diagnosed with throat and neck cancer. And like many other physical challenges in my life, I thought that just being tough and fighting it out and fighting your way through it and being a real man was the way to go. Uh, I thought Even on some level, I thought I was better than all the other patients because I could do this better. Um, I even very stubbornly refused um, a feeding tube because I thought I could do it differently. And uh, a very good friend, uh, accountability partner, um, came up to me and uh, we were sitting down having a conversation and he said, Scott, He said, I'm embarrassed for you. I was not expecting those words. Um, Probably the hardest words I had ever heard in my life that I remember. And he said, the the more you try to do things on your own strength, the more you refuse to admit that you have any weakness whatsoever, there's no room for God's strength to show in your life at all. The things that I am most prideful in are the very things that I believe God is asking me to leave behind. But I have the tendency to want to hang on to those so hard because they define either what I've done, what I've accomplished, or who I am. And yet that's not what I want. I want my life to be defined from here on out 
by my love for Christ, my love for my family, and my care and concern for others. And as long as I have that huge, prideful mountain to climb over, that won't happen. Pride is insidious, and it is tricky, and it, and it is always there at some level. Early, first couple of years of my ministry, there would... I would suffer these uh, periods of paralysis where I found it very difficult to, to do things because although they were good things that I wanted to do, I, I was quite aware that I wanted to do these good things so that people would look at me as being a good person or a good leader or whatever. And I was very uh, upside down about this and uh, for a while, I decided to just not do these things because I couldn't, I couldn't get my motives to be pure. And after a while, I came to decide um, my motives are never pure, ever, right? And they're not going to be. And all I can do is uh, confess that and do the right thing. I need to do the right thing and not be paralyzed from doing the right thing, but I need to... I need to humble myself and I need to confess my mixed motives as sin. And I think the same thing comes true with pride. Right? We can't get past it. It's just always there. As soon as I am not consciously trying to keep God at the center of my life, I go right back to, to this disordered self-orientation that I don't believe makes any sense. I do not believe that I'm the center of the universe but I think that way and live that way. And all I can do is confess <laughs> that that is my sinful orientation and that pride is insidious and I, I confess it as sin and move forward. Number four, pride is not just insidious, pride is deadly. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the problems that people have with pride is that it's It's ugly. Right? Someone who's proud looks at some level, they look small and desperate. As soon as you figure out that the person you're hanging out with really believes that they are better than you are, right? and there's a sense in which you're just a prop in the, in the play of their life, that that's what you're there for, you don't think highly of them. You don't think, wow, they are better than me. You think, well, that's pretty shallow. You're pretty conceited. You're a jerk, right? I mean, that's basically our approach when you see someone who's full of pride. They're, they're delusional, right, or they're conceited or they're a jerk. And um, they're small under any scenario. And it looks desperate at some level. I, a couple years ago, we went down to visit Austin, who was then working in the Peace Corps and living in this um, tool shed in the Dominican Republic in a, in a slum. And uh, <laughs> we didn't stay at the slum, in the, the slum or in the tool shed, by the way. Not because we were proud, we would tell ourselves. Um, it was like eight feet by eight feet, and there were tarantulas, and, you know, and there's only so much mosquito netting. And so we stayed at a beach resort about 20 <laughs> minutes away. 
And uh, at this beach resort, there was uh, all these exotic birds. There were parrots in the trees, and there were flamingos in the ponds, and there were, the, there were these peacocks that were sort of hung out by the food court. And so whenever we were going to get a meal, we would go past all these peacocks. And it was, it was apparently mating season, and the, the male peacocks had their, fe- their tail feathers fanned, right? And initially, this, this was quite something to see. I'd never seen peacocks with their tail feathers fanned, and it was like, wow, look at this. This is spectacular. So the next time we go by, uh, we stop, and we're looking at, at this, these guys, and, and it, I, I just noticed that, first of all, the female peacocks seem to could care less about uh, the fact that these guys are prancing around forever trying to get in their line of sight. And so, uh, yeah, it looked a little desperate. And so the third time, I actually tried to coach a couple of the male peacocks and say, <laughs> guys, right, subtle, understated, right? You're trying too hard. This looks desperate. And uh, I believe Sherry's comment was, uh, looks typically male to me. Is, uh, <laughs> but you think that when you see people who are vain, people who are proud. It looks small. But that's really a minor point. Pride also is dangerous. Right? I mean, that's what Solomon says in In uh, Proverbs 11, he says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. And in Proverbs 16, he says, pride goes before the fall. And in Proverbs 29, he says, pride will bring a person low, right? There's a warning here. When you think better of yourself than you should, you are setting yourself up for a fall. Pride is dangerous. Pride is what sunk the Titanic, right? I mean, yeah, sure, it's an iceberg. But no, it was pride. When you go back and read their promotional literature, you see that, that, that the captain was arrogant. I mean, he writes and says, modern shipbuilding in the 20th century renders sinking an impossibility. I cannot imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. I cannot conceive of any vital disaster happening to this vessel. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. That attitude led him to not have enough lifeboats on the boat. It led him to not slow down when all the other ships in that, that passageway and the shipping lanes were, were telegramming and saying, there's major ice flows in the shipping channel, you need to go slow. And it led him to not stop after he hit the iceberg, which is what experts believe led to the ship sinking so much more quickly than it needed to. It was pride, right? Pride is dangerous. But that's not the big issue, right? Pride is deadly. Pride is deadly because pride blinds us of our need for God. It turns us into Pharisees who rest on our own merit. It leads us to a self-sufficiency that is fundamentally opposed to the gospel itself. Remember the story of... uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. It says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, the proud, to some who were confident in their own goodness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
Okay? So don't think the bad things that you think about a Pharisee. We know that the Pharisees are bad guys because we've read the New Testament. At, in their day, the Pharisees were the, were the religious elite. They were trying hard. They were the ones who worked diligently you know, to serve and to keep their quiet times and to be righteous and to give their money as they were supposed to. They, they were doing all the things right. And the tax collectors were the traitors, right? When Rome took over an area, it sold franchises to the highest bidder. The people who would buy these franchises were traitors to their own people. They were promising, I will get more money out of my friends and family than anyone else. And I get to keep whatever uh, I, I get over what I have to pay you. They were hated. So you've got... The Pharisees are perceived as the religious elite, and you've got the traitors. So two men were in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The, the, the good guy who's trying hard and doing everything right, but who is resting in his own merit, is the one who is sunk. His pride is deadly. Jesus says it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. So how do we deal with our pride? How do we get on top of this? Well, there are several things that uh, come to mind. I mean, you know, we need to worship God. We need to focus on God because to the extent that we see him rightly, we understand who we are. We don't, have to, we don't have to think bad thoughts about ourselves. If we see God rightly, then that level sets the room. Secondly, we you know, need to listen to our critics because although they may be misguided, there's probably some truth there. And we, we tend to protect our heart and our ego defensively and not let that kind of information in. Um, thirdly, clearly we need to just humble ourselves. Right? I mean, that's, that's the advice that we get from Paul. He says in Philippians 2, verse 3, that uh, we're not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. Right? That we're, we're not told to pray for humility. Right? We're told to humble ourselves. We're told to go to the end of the line. We're told to do the things we think we're too good to do. We're told to put others ahead of ourselves. right? That's to be an active response to life. There are things that we can do. I want to suggest two as we end here um, this morning. The first is I want to suggest that we believe the gospel. And that we let it change us. That, that we don't just trust in the gospel for our salvation, but that we trust in the gospel for our transformation. Let me read you a quote from Tim Keller. He says, The gospel destroys pride. 
Because it tells us that we are so lost that Jesus had to die for us, right? The gospel, you just truncate it and simplify it, but the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is a story in which God is the hero and we are broken. And we don't contribute to our salvation. We are loved not because we're lovable. We're loved in spite of who we are. We're loved because God is loving. God is the hero. <laughs> we are broken. That's, that's the, the premise of the gospel. So Keller writes, the gospel destroys pride because it tells us we are so lost that Jesus had to die for us. The gospel, if it's really believed, removes neediness. The need to be constantly respected, appreciated, and well-regarded. The need to have everything in your life go well. The need to have power over others. All these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of the glorious God delighting in you with all his being is just that, a concept, nothing more. Our hearts don't believe it. So they operate in default mode. If you really want to change, you must let the gospel teach you, train you, discipline and coach you over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink down deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation, your views, and your attitudes. We need the gospel, not just for salvation. We need to understand that that what is happening in our favor is because of the grace of God. The goodness of God. We didn't earn it. And, and we, are, we are broken people who deserve something very different than what we're going to get. And once we get what we are being given, love and eternal life and forgiveness of sins, once we get what we're being given, that should fundamentally change our posture towards everyone and everything else. Anyways, I, I don't know whether they've announced who won, but somebody won $400 million in the lottery. So $400 million fundamentally changes somebody's life. You don't worry about little things. You're not worried about protecting your, your ego or a certain title or your job or money concerns because something happened that, that fundamentally reshapes everything. Well, men and women, the gospel is worth more than $400 million. And when we get what we have been given, that should fundamentally say, it's about him, it's not about me. (laughs) And I should have a very different posture, one of thankfulness for God and what he has done for me. And not keep thinking, right, like, like the Pharisee, like the peacock, that look at me and how great I am. And being self referential as opposed to being God referential. The first thing that we need to do is believe the gospel. And the the next thing that we need to do, and it's what we're going to do as we bring this service to a close, is to confess our sins. We need the ongoing habit and practice of confessing our brokenness and our pride. And so... I'm going to lead us in a um, liturgical prayer of confession. And I'm going to give you a, just a 15 seconds as I mention each of these areas for you to pray silently for uh, the sin 
in your life. And then I will pray a prayer, and it will end with me saying, Lord, have mercy upon us. And your response, which you will see on the, on the screen, is to say, Lord, forgive us for our pride. So I invite you now to take a moment silently to confess your self-sufficiency and desire for control. Lord, we confess that we often depend more on our own abilities and adequacy than in yours. We confess that we are more comfortable when we feel that we are in control of our lives than when we relinquish that control to you. Lord, have mercy on us. Take a moment now to confess self-promotion and desire for gain. Lord, we confess that we do not consider the needs of others above our own. We confess that we often think of how we will benefit from a relationship or an action rather than simply loving others. We confess that we are often selfish with our time, with our money, with our possessions, rather than being open-handed and generous. Lord, have mercy on us. Take a moment to confess the ways that you are concerned with image, how you are perceived by others. Lord, we confess that we think too much about our image, about what others think of us. We confess that we want to be seen as skilled, accomplished, together, stylish, cool, confident, successful. We confess that we long for recognition, respect, and the approval of others instead of simply being secure in your love for us and in our identity as your children. Lord, have mercy on us. Take a moment to confess your defensiveness and self-preservation. Lord, we confess that we often think we are the ones that know best, that our position is the right one rather than being open to listen to others' ideas. We confess that we defend ourselves when criticized rather than considering how we can grow. Lord, have mercy on us. Finally, take a moment to confess any false humility or self-hatred. Lord, we confess that we dwell too much on our mistakes, thinking about how it made us look in the eyes of others. We do not give ourselves the grace that you have freely lavished on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Let's stand together.